Well, before we, we uh, turn our attention to God's word, will you join me in prayer one more time? Our Father in heaven, we not only want to welcome your presence, we want to welcome you to speak into our lives through your word. We recognize that you alone have the words of life. And so we pray that you would come and that you would nourish our souls with the seed of your word, that you would come and you would speak to us right where we're at, that you would open the eyes of our heart, and as we look at your word, that you would help us to behold wonderful things from your word. We know that as the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways. So help us to understand your ways. Guide us in your truth. Meet us where we're at so that we might leave here changed by your presence. And we ask this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, back before the days of iPhone selfies and even 35 millimeter film, if you wanted to capture someone's image, they would need to sit for a portrait. And then an artist would paint a representation of that person's likeness. Now, Jesus never sat for a portrait. We have no idea what his cheekbone or his jawline or his eyebrows look like. But in another sense, we really do know what Jesus was like. We can think of the Gospels as portraits. They paint a picture that revealed Jesus' character and his attributes. We get a sense of what pushed his buttons and what brought a smile to his face through, through the recounting of events that happened in his life. And so while we can't know what the bridge of Jesus' nose looked like, in another sense, we really can know what Jesus was like. Uh, one event that really illuminates Jesus' character is recorded for us in Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to meet me in verse 36. As Luke, the sketch artist, continues shading in more detail that really helps us answer the question, who is this Jesus? We're told that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he, that's Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So in, in ancient Jewish culture, it was common to invite a visiting rabbi to a meal after he had taught in the synagogue. We aren't told the Pharisee's motivation for inviting Jesus to his home, but we're given reason to suspect that he thought that a conversation over dinner would afford him the opportunity to study Jesus a, a bit more closely. He's heard the chatter. And this would, this would afford him an opportunity to, to gain clarity for himself on whether Jesus was, in fact, the real deal. Well, Jesus accepts the invitation, and he takes his place reclining around the table. The table would have been much lower than the tables we sit around today. Back then, people would lie on their side, propped up on an elbow, with their, their feet sort of angling away from the table like spokes from a hub. And this dinner party is going according to plan. It, it is an event in the life of Jesus that probably never would, it's meant, never would have made its way into Scripture until, until we get to verse 37. It starts this way, and behold. Now, behold is a word we don't use very often, is it? 
I'm guessing you haven't said it yet this weekend. But in, a, in, in, a, in an oral culture where storytelling was more common, this, this is a word that gets used frequently. It's the storyteller's way of getting our attention. Luke's saying, are, are you all ears? Be, because a surprise is coming. You're, you're never going to guess what happens next. Get this. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And you can guess what the response of everyone would have been. Let me hear a collective gasp. Ready? <gasps> I know. Like, can you believe this? I mean, you, you can imagine the shock that would have rippled through the room. This isn't some ordinary woman. Th th this woman is a, is a sinner. And we aren't told the basis for that description. Tradition has it that this was a euphemism for prostitute. Uh, that's certainly a possibility, but perhaps she was an adulteress. Whatever her sins were, here's what we know. That they were considered egregious, and it was one for which she was notorious. So Jesus is about to have an interaction with two vastly different people. His host is a, is a man, and the party crasher is a woman. His host has a name. This woman remains unnamed. The man is a Pharisee, which tells us that he would have been known for his piety. This woman is known for her indiscretions. He's sort of the insider with social status. She's the outsider that's looked down upon. But the more important difference between the two is the way that they approach Jesus. This sinful woman is drawn to Jesus in a very personal way. She has overheard his, his teaching at some point, and she has made up her mind. He is the real deal. So after she learns that he's eating at the Pharisee's home, she goes to see him, bringing with her an alabaster flask filled with ointment. This ointment would have soothed Jesus' tired feet, and it would have had a pleasant aroma. It would have had a fragrance that would have been very pleasing. And, and, and Luke recounts her actions with great detail. Standing behind Jesus, uh, she would have had access to his feet that were angled away from the, the table. And, and she's so overcome in his presence that her tears began to puddle on his feet. And so she lets down her hair. You can kind of think of what that would have meant in that culture. And then, after letting down her hair, she dries his feet with her hair. And after she washes his feet, she kisses them and anoints them with the ointment. And I, and I think this communicates something about the humility with which she approaches Jesus. The only part of his body that she touches is the lowest part, the feet. And, and it would seem that she doesn't even feel worthy in his presence to speak. But here's what we'll go on to see, that her actions speak louder than a thousand words. Now, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. When he saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You figure the Pharisee would be asking himself, like, you know, why in the world is this woman even in here? Well, in, in the ancient world, when a rabbi or some other dignitary was in town, uninvited people were still permitted to stand up against the wall and listen in on the conversation. It would appear that Simon isn't irked by the fact that this woman is present, so much that he's bothered that that Jesus is accepting this woman's actions. And as a result, he doubts Jesus' credentials. He writes him off because if Jesus was a true prophet, he would know this woman's reputation, and he would certainly not allow her to be touching him. Now, Now watch the irony. The Pharisee doesn't say any of this out loud. He's thinking it to himself. And Jesus' response reveals that, oh, he not only knows this woman's past. Simon, I know your thoughts too. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And and rather cordially even, perhaps respectfully, the Pharisee answered it. Say it, teacher. And as he often does, And Jesus goes on to communicate an important spiritual truth by way of a parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The meaning of the parable is rather straightforward. One debtor owes approximately two months' wages, and the other is indebted to the tune of a year's wages. And despite the difference in the amount owed, neither debtor has the capacity to repay the loan. Now, here comes the twist. The money lender, rather than forcing them into servitude or into the debtor's prison, freely forgives their debts. And then Jesus raises the question about which debtor will respond with greater love. And the answer, of course, is the larger the debt forgiven, the larger the gratitude. Now, now each part of this parable has a spiritual parallel. The moneylender depicts God, the debt is sin, and the two debtors depict different levels of sinners. And then Jesus applies this parable to the current situation. He turns to the woman, but he speaks to the Pharisee, and he contrasts his behavior with hers. Do you see this woman? He says. I can't help but wonder if in that moment her her anxiety rose for a second as she waited with some sense of anticipation as to what would happen next. But instead of being singled out for embarrassment, she is elevated. Jesus says, I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. How about that? Commentators agree that Simon wasn't necessarily being rude and omitting these gestures. They weren't mandatory, but he certainly wasn't being warm and personable. 
And Jesus looks at the woman and he affirms her. He says, in effect, Simon, I might be your guest, but it's this woman who has truly welcomed me. And Jesus goes on to receive this woman's hospitality as an unspoken confession of faith. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Notice that Jesus doesn't overlook her sins. He knows who this woman is, and he notes even that her sins are many. But he says they are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, on the one hand, one could read this and wonder if Jesus is implying that the reason that he has forgiven her is because of what she has done. In other words, her act of love is the source or it's, it's the cause of her forgiveness. However, I don't think that's the best reading. Rather, I think what we see Jesus saying here is because of what she has done, I can conclude that her sins, in fact, have been forgiven. In other words, her act of love is the result of her forgiveness. And, and I think this makes the most sense when we look at the larger context. Remember, Jesus told the parable to explain why this woman acted the way that she did. And in verse 50, Jesus makes it clear that it's not her actions, it's her faith that brings salvation. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the point Jesus is making is that he can indeed conclude that this woman's sins are forgiven because of the great love that she has showed him. She has been forgiven much, therefore she has loved much. Simon, on the other hand, has a different approach to Jesus. And it isn't because he's disinterested in spiritual matters. I mean, he's the one that invited Jesus over in the first place. Here's the reason he has a different reaction, a different approach. It's because he doesn't understand he's a debtor. See, the point of Jesus' parable isn't that because Simon has committed fewer sins than this woman, he's justified in being cool towards Jesus. You see, it doesn't matter if you're $500,000 in debt or if you're $50,000 in debt. If you are unable to pay your debt, guess what? You're in the same situation. You're still trapped. You're still stuck in debt. And Simon is still in need of forgiveness. But he's thinking, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm not that flawed. And so as a result, he, do, he doesn't see his need for forgiveness. He's been forgiven little, and therefore he loves little. It's as if Jesus is telling Simon, oh, Simon, if you knew who I was, it, 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 and you, you had experienced forgiveness, the forgiveness I could give, then you would be touching and kissing and hugging me too. And the irony is, is, is that the woman with, with the sordid past is the one who leaves saved, while, while the upstanding citizen, the one who's led a virtuous life, misses out on God's grace. We've got to think about that. And I think the the response that all of us would want from Jesus is the response that the woman received, right? And so that means that the way that she approached Jesus should inform the way that we approach Jesus as well. And so I want to share with you three attributes 
that are characteristic of the way that forgiven people worship. If you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, you'll see we have uh, blanks for each of these. Number one, forgiven people are unashamed in their love for Jesus. They're unashamed. We don't have to be an expert in ancient Near Eastern social customs to know that this woman was taking an enormous risk. I mean, surely she had to wonder if the next morning she was going to be the talk of the town. And yet this woman is so captivated with Jesus. She's so appreciative of his love and the compassion and the mercy that he's extended. She says, who cares if I'm the subject of anyone's jokes? It's worth it to me. I'm going to risk public disgrace for the opportunity to convey my gratitude to him. Now, let me ask you this. Who knows if you're a Christian, if you've been forgiven much, that you're grateful to Jesus for what he's done for you? Are, are you keeping that under wraps? Or are you keeping that close to the vest? Or, or like the woman, are you willing to go public? I don't know what this says about my imagination, but I can't help but think about that uh, scene from the movie Elf where uh, Buddy runs into his dad's conference room and he throws off his hat and he says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and help me out if you know what comes next, and I, and I don't care who knows it. There's some truth to that. If we're in love then with someone, then we don't, we don't care who knows about it. Let, let me ask you this. If, um, if you had just gotten engaged... And your fiance said, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get married, but I don't want anyone to know about it. No rings, no phone calls to coworkers, um, no big celebration, no engagement party, no telling friends and family, no social media posts, like just, you know, this stays under wraps. How would that sit with you? Yeah, not so well, right? Because when you're in love, you don't care who knows it. Or what about this? What, what about if your bank called you up and said, you know, we, we, we still see you have like 20 months left on your auto loan, but hey, just from time to time, we like to be generous to our customers and we're going to forgive your remaining balance and we're going to send you the title free and clear. If your bank actually did that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if, your, if your bank did that, just, you know, they, they wiped away, yeah, 20 months debt and you had some friends who were shopping for a bank, wouldn't you tell them about your bank and the customer service you had received? Yeah. And so how much more, if, if Jesus has forgiven us this debt that we can't repay, how much more should we want to share that? Should we want to speak about that? Number two, forgiven people are extravagant in their love for Jesus. The word is extravagant. This woman brought something with her when she entered Simon's home. Do you remember what it was? What was it? The alabaster flask, right? And we know from a similar incident that happened later in Jesus' life that a flask like this could have been sold for 300 denarii, or a year's wages. We don't know how this woman came in possession of such a valuable item. Perhaps it was a result of a family inheritance or years of hard work and saving. But, but here's what we know. However she acquired it, this would have been a very prized possession because of its high value. It's the type of item that would have given one a sense of financial security. And yet this woman takes her prized possession and she 
pours it on Jesus' feet. She lavishes Jesus with this luxury. Why? Well, it's a declaration of how valuable Jesus was to her. This says something about the great worth that she attaches to Jesus. You see, a gift reveals the heart of a giver. A gift reveals the heart of a giver. And this woman's extravagant gift is a reflection of her heart, of her love for Jesus. And the question we should ask ourselves is, what does our giving reveal about our heart for Jesus? Does it reveal a great love for him? Or is your approach to giving more like paying taxes? Which, by the way, are due in five days. <laughs> when, when it comes to paying taxes, do any of you ever, you know, hire a CPA or a tax consultant to help you figure out how you can give a little bit more to the IRS? <laughs> Nobody does that, right? I mean, the goal is to figure out how to minimize our tax burden. We, we want to know, okay, what, what's the bare minimum? What do I have to pony up to get the IRS off my back? Is that how we approach giving to God? Or is, or is our giving more like the way that we'd approach shopping for a birthday present for a lifelong friend? Do you find yourself wanting to be generous? Do you think to yourself, you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense on paper, but God, after everything that you've done for me, here it is. Here's my best. I'm giving you my first fruits, and, and I'm taking the leftovers. People who recognize that they have been forgiven much are extravagant towards Jesus. Number three, forgiven people are passionate in their love for Jesus. They're passionate. Because this woman had been forgiven much, there was fervor to her worship. When Luke tells us that she kissed his feet, it's the more intense form of the verb. It's the same verb that's used to describe that the kiss the father gives the prodigal son upon his return. It's also the kiss of the Ephesian elders when they bid farewell to the apostle Paul after he had ministered there for three years. This wasn't an erotic kiss, but it was most certainly emotional. Now, I know we can't go kissing Jesus right now, but one of the ways that our, our passion for Jesus can be evident, and I really think should be evident, is in our musical worship. The scriptures are full of exhortations to worship God through singing. Psalm 47.1 says this, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Psalm 95, 1, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. All told, there are over 400 references in the Bible to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. Why is that? I mean, why not just come in here and why not just like speak God's praises? Well, one of the reasons is that when you combine words with music, it, it connects the words that we sing to our hearts. Music engages our emotions, doesn't it? There, there's a reason there's a soundtrack to movies. And God wants our hearts to be involved when we worship him. And you, you know, know this already, but let, let me just be Captain Obvious for a moment. The, the, the praise team that's up here, it's not their job to sort of like pinch hit for us 
in this area. Their job is to lead. Their job is to facilitate our collective singing. And so I'd ask us, when we sing, are we communicating that we have been forgiven much? And you might say, well, well uh, you know, the this, this songs don't really stir me. Or I, I prefer a different style of worship. Now, listen, I, I get that there's going to be times when we're going to be more moved to engage. But here's what we do. We set our heart on the truth that's revealed in the lyrics. See, if, if musical worship is a fire, then the truth of the gospel is the fuel for our worship. Or we could think of it like this. Maybe some of you have a lawnmower that has a primer on it. You know, you want to get the lawnmower to start, you hit the primer. There is a primer for our worship. And it's a twofold primer. The intensity of our worship for Jesus is dependent on one, how deeply we see our sin. And then two, how deeply we see ourselves forgiven. We get that right and there is fervor to our worship. John Wensley once wrote an introduction to a hymnal, and this is what he said. Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. <laughs> Passionless worship is almost a, uh, maybe an oxymoron. And you might say, well, hey, I'm, I'm not really an emotional person. All this weeping and kissing and letting down your hair, that isn't really for me. I love Jesus with my mind, not with my heart. And I would say, well, I think Jesus wants our heart too. Uh, he said the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all of our what? Our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and even if you tend to be rather reserved and buttoned up and, you know, keep the stiff upper lip, I'm guessing that you're not entirely like Spock from Star Trek. If you're human, uh, yes, you, you, you know, you, you might have this tendency to gravitate towards logic and reason, but God has still given you, uh, along with your cognitive faculties, the capacity to have affection and emotions. And, and guys, I think I just, I'm going to speak especially to us for a moment because I think, you know, we tend to maybe be more reserved. I would just say that the same emotion that we would bring into, say, like a sporting event, we can take that with us to church. I, I think our kids need to know that we are more excited about what Jesus did for us than what some running back does on a field or the outcome of a, of a, of a sporting event. And, and in some ways, we have an advantage over this woman. It, it should be easier for us to show love to Jesus in a way that's, that's extravagant and passionate and unashamed because when this, what this woman, what, what she understood in part, we know in full. See, the, the woman recognized that Jesus was the one that could extend grace and forgive her sins. But she didn't have the full knowledge of how that was possible. We do. We know that anytime there's a debt and forgiveness is granted, there's always a cost associated with that. It just means that the creditor, instead of the debtor, absorbs the cost. Someone's got to pay. It doesn't vanish into thin air. And Jesus is able to say to that woman and to us today, your sins are forgiven. He's able to do that because he is the one who absorbed the debt. 
He's the one who paid the cost. He, he purchased our forgiveness when he hung on that cross. He paid for it with the sacrifice of his life. And Jesus gave us a, a special way to remember this, to nurture our faith. When we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have this opportunity to, to reflect on the magnitude of our debt. Our, our debt was so big that we could never pay it ourselves. Our debt was so big that the body of Christ had to be broken for us. And yet this meal also brings assurance. And when we partake in it, we are reminded not only of our debt, but also of our forgiveness. Jesus says that the cup, that when we drink it, it's the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for what? For the forgiveness of sins. And so in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a meal that uh, Jesus instituted before he went to the cross during Holy Week. And, and just as a way of reminding ourselves of just the importance of this meal, I want to uh, share with you a few instructions that are given to us in Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so there's, there's a right way to partake of this meal. And, and the right way is, is that we approach this meal the same way that this woman approached Jesus. We approach it with, with some humility. We, we recognize the depth of our sin, that the body of Christ had to be broken for us. And yet we can also approach it with some measure of gratitude because when we partake of it, we know what Jesus is saying to us, what he purchased for us and the assurance we have. I just want to say that this, this meal is uh, available to all those who profess faith in Jesus. And in the event um, you, you missed one of the little communion kits on the way in, uh, you can just slip up your hand and we've got some folks in the back that will be happy to bring you one. Uh, but I'm going to give a moment just for us to do what that scripture says, to examine ourselves. And if you're here and you've never approached Jesus the way that this woman did in a very personal way, if you've just always been kind of detached or cool or, you know, interested, but kind of not really embraced him the way that the woman had, I want to give you the opportunity to do that, to, to, to be forgiven much. After a moment of silence, I'll lead us in a prayer.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for sending your Son and for your Spirit that inspired these words so that we can know what you are like and we can know how we can have a relationship with you and how we should approach you. And I pray that as a result of our partaking in this meal together, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would nourish us, and that our relationship with you would be more like the woman's and less like Simon's. Lord, I think of the one here who maybe doesn't yet know what it is to be forgiven much. And if that's you, I want to give you the opportunity to change that. You can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I want to come before you the way that this woman did. I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I'm in debt. I recognize that I'm separated from you. And Jesus, I believe that you can do something about that. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for imparting your perfect righteousness to me. Thank you for bearing the punishment that I deserve to bear and giving me eternal life. I want to live for you all of my days. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you, for this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we partake of these elements, what I think we should hear is uh, Jesus saying to us exactly what he said to that woman. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And uh, we're going to continue to worship the Lord now through our singing. And I would just say that if you have been forgiven much, let's just approach this time the same way that that woman would have approached. And let's let Jesus know a, a bit of our gratitude.